Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with Wesley Yun, Director of UX for Hardware at GoPro. Wesley talks about how GoPro approaches design on the hardware side, what he looks for in recruits, and his work with Designer Fund's Bridge Guild. Enjoy the show. Wesley, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for having me. I'd love to start off with um, having you share with folks a little bit about you, what you're currently doing, and how you arrived at GoPro. Uh, certainly. Um, I'm currently the director of user experience on the hardware side. So you obviously spoke to my counterpart, Vanessa Cho, and she's on the software and services side. She runs the mobile and um, desktop and web. And I run uh, all of the experience on the actual camera itself and some of the remotes. So anytime you have a user experience on a camera, such as like a uh, if you were to turn it on, mm-hmm. what happens if you hit that shutter button? What happens? And those two things seem fairly obvious. <laughs> so <laughs> my job is pretty easy. Uh, no, I'm joking. Um, it's just uh, this is really a, a tricky thing because the the complexity of these devices start to grow, and so that's why I have a team of about twelve folks: mm-hmm. um, user experience designers, some visual designers and um, some production engineers, uh, as well as researchers. Uh, and I run that team. Awesome. Awesome. So how did you find your way there to GoPro? That is a really good question. Um, I, it sort of found me, actually. Uh, I had just uh, gotten laid off from my previous job, which was at Lytro. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a different kind of camera um, startup. And Rich Joshua, who is my boss, uh, was a person I worked with at Palm back mm-hmm. in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and on this team, there are several folks, uh, a guy named Steve Yui. He and I worked together at Motorola. A woman named Michelle Lapira. She and I worked together at Motorola. Uh, there's a woman named um, Michelle Ko. She and I worked together at the Designery, at Helio, at Palm. <laughs> <laughs> and now we work together. And uh, there's a woman named Faraday. Uh, and she's uh, my researcher, and she and I worked together at Palm. So it was sort of like, hey, come here. And I was like, yeah. Of course, uh, it's just sort of like working with friends again. And this is one of those things in the Valley. It's so small. Everybody knows everyone. And your reputation sort of carries. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's like one big reunion. It is. And it's really <laughs> fun to work with um, obviously new folks, um, folks that I hadn't worked with before. But um, the, the folks, when you have worked with them before, they already know your working style. They sort of have established trust and a relationship with you. And so there's a certain openness immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's always great. That's great. That's great. So you're talking at the O'Reilly Design Conference about designing for hardware and software with Vanessa. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about what it's like to work within your hardware team. You mentioned, you know, a little bit about the types of folks in your team. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, to hear, like, how do you how do you operate? How do you manage? And then how do you work across um, teams into the software team? Well, um, that's a really Really difficult question to answer. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, you know, e- every company um, silos these groups, um, mm. all very different. Uh, they all have different reporting structures. They all have very different, um, usually different bosses, different agendas, different KPIs, different OKRs. They, mm. they have almost everything um, that allows for misalignment. <laughs> right. So, um, so it is actually up to the individuals to reach out across groups, which is so difficult because you are so 
um, sort of deeply involved in your own problem and your own solving those problems. Yeah. And those are complex as it is. But to try to reach out and, and sort of coordinate with different groups, mm-hmm. it's it's so, so difficult. Uh, we, we try to do these things through um, our researchers, the, the research teams on Vanessa's team and my team. Um, they work very well together. Um, and, and this is a very, fairly new relationship, but they've been developing this more and more. We just, um, as a group, moved to the building with both the industrial designers and the mounts team. Mm-hmm. So now we sit right between them. And this gives us uh, not only visibility into what they're doing, we literally just look over and see what they're working on and they can do the same. And so this this sort of co-location really allows for um, people to work more efficiently and more collaboratively. But of course, Vanessa's team is located in San Francisco and San Diego. My team is located in San Mateo. And so we really have to make a concerted effort. Wow. Yeah, to reach across and um, really understand what are you guys, what are you guys working on? Here, here's some of the stuff that we're working on. We normally have a Friday sync up on the visual design side, um, mm-hmm. and we also do. Uh, Vanessa initiated these things where the entire design organization, I think, came together for the first time. Actually, when I joined about seven months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are new initiatives that um, folks like her really have to promote. It's, it's not one of those things that the organization naturally just or intuitively does. Um, right. So that's... Complicated, huh? Complicated. Well, so I, I didn't even think of this, but you know, you mentioned the industrial uh, designers and the mounts team. I assume that you're talking about actual mounts. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, so there's really four different... I mean, I'm sure there's more than that, but when you look across, there's there's four succinct teams they're all trying to make sure that they know what the other one's doing right and that's just on the product side i mean if you go to the branding side and marketing side there's an entire organization um, dedicated to making those really really cool videos as well as the commercial website you know the gopro.com as Mm -hmm. well as you know all of the content generated like that that is like an entire other company Mm -hmm. Uh, we have some visibility into what they're working on and they have some visibility into what we're working on. But, you know, just coordinating between Vanessa and my team is difficult. Um, you know, try to reach out to the media team, to the creative team. This this is like a full-time job. Wow. So did you, I mean, you mentioned that you've moved into the same building as these these other two teams. Obviously, that was intended um, for yes. for this kind of collaboration. I mean, have, have you found, I don't know how long you've been in the same same building, not long probably, but have you found immediate differences, changes? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you have to because you're co-located. Right? Mm-hmm. And so even just uh, people can look over and see if you're at your desk and walk over and ask you a question instead of sending you an email that gets buried under a pile <laughs> of other emails, you know. Um, uh, and, and those questions could really be um, roadblocks to, you know, or an impediment to progress. And so like just the ability to just walk over and say, hey, we're thinking about changing this one thing to this. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? What are the implications? What, what are the ramifications of this change to your schedule, to your designs, your thinking? And then you can have a five minute conversation, which otherwise would have been a, you know, you would have had a set of a one hour meeting and it would have probably taken a week to schedule it on your calendar. <laughs> because you can't, you know, sync calendars and all that stuff in in that I have to say that efficiency is is um, gained when you are co-located. 
Absolutely. And and you never know what kind of um, additional information or conversation, you know, the conversation kind of can wind into other areas and, and maybe even offer you insights you didn't know you were going to get. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's difficult to keep people who are out of sight top of mind. So, right. Um, you know, just you may have asked these or you may have made assumptions prior to um, asking. And so you can very, very quickly clarify some of the assumptions that you're making. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So I'd like to switch gears just briefly to talk a little bit about um, your work with the Bridge Guild. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited about that. So so tell me what it is and what it is you do there. Sure. Uh, So Ben Blumenfeld and Enrique Allen are two guys who started um, Designers Fund. Mm -hmm. And really, this sort of um, was born out of their, I wouldn't say frustration, but their hope that um, there were more designer-funded, designer-started, designer-entrepreneur startups. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we were seeing a trend of companies that where designers were the CEOs, the designers were founding companies. It used to be, you know, you were an MBA or product person or an engineer who had some sort of clever idea and would create a, a startup. And I think the emergence of the designer CEO um, was, uh, you know, this was a pretty radical idea three or four years ago mm-hmm. um, when they were having these thoughts. Um, no one, you know, there was no DIR. There was no designers in res- residence. There were no, you know, there was no John Maeda. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, none of this. And um, and so this was, this seemed at the time a very radical, interesting, forward-thinking idea. Now it's sort of commonplace. It almost feels like, you know, just in a matter of two or three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but at the time, it was very important. And they also wanted to raise funds to fund um, actual startups where design was um, very central to the decision making, like uh, at, at the very sort of top. Mm-hmm. Um, and from this, I think what they discovered was uh, a gap between um, design education and uh, design professionals and the opportunities at these new startups. I mean, I think that there are an entirely different set of skills that you need at startups um, than from the traditional marketing or um, agency background, which is where a lot of designers sort of get routed into mm-hmm. I think, coming out of school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when when I came out of school, I thought I was going to be a print designer. And so, you know, uh, I couldn't find a job in print. So I, you know, worked at the next best thing, which at the time was seemed like a very sort of step back because I always thought print was this beautiful medium where you can do these amazing, rich, detailed, colorful, beautiful um, objects to the internet, which was broken and horrible and janky, <laughs> and, you know, like pixelated. And, and so uh, I always thought it was a bit of a step back. So there, there, but there was no real bridge for, for someone like me to um, sort of make that transition where my emphasis was strictly on print to this new way of thinking about a new medium. And mm-hmm. so I think that's where the, they saw the gap or the delta between um, designers and their experience and the needs of the startups. And so they created this program called Bridge. And a lot of um, initially people thought it a, thought of it as an internship, but it's really for um, sort of mid-level professionals. You reach year five or six or seven of your career and you want to make a transition, um, but you just don't know how and you don't want to take a huge step back in terms of um, position. And so Bridge really connects um, some of the most talented designers um, to some of these startups um, and Strava's in there, uh, I think, 
Pinterest mm-hmm. and Omada Health and Asana and, you know, uh, Coursera. All of these groups are, are part of this. Um, and I think they benefit greatly um, from having access to these designers. I mean, recruiting is such a challenge in this space. Mm-hmm. To have access to that many talented people who have been vetted by some of the best designers um, is really sort of a leg up. Um, and so they, they pay to be a part of the, the program. And then these students um, or these applicants basically get paired to a company and then they become uh, hired by the company. And as part of the hiring, um, what Bridge does is allows the designers to come together, form a community um, and also have um, skill sharing. And they bring in expert experts in different spaces, um, not just like tools in terms of like prototyping, but uh, I remember going to a session where they were teaching improvisation. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a professor from Stanford who came in and gave a demonstration of how to build trust and break down barriers. And uh, he used improvisation as a tool for helping designers do that. And mm-hmm. I saw people transform in the ma- you know, in a matter of like 10, 15 minutes. Um, they became more playful and open. And, you know, how do you even explain that? Uh, mm-hmm. But that's the sort of the magic of, of Bridge. And, I, you know, people go there and they form like lifelong friendships. And I've formed uh, really great relationships with folks there. Uh, and so what my, my role as a mentor is, is uh, I, I look for designers who might be a good fit for them. So I, I basically um, introduce them to Bridge. Uh, and then um, when they have candidates or uh, applicants who come through, they have to get interviewed by these um, companies. And so I help them put their portfolio together and think about the interview and um, and then sort of mentor them through that process. And if they have any questions about what it's like, and they could be very sort of straightforward questions that you may not have experienced before, such as what is a product manager? What is a project manager? What is a program manager? What is the difference between a program manager, a project manager, and a product manager? Mm. You know, these kinds of questions are not... Um, something that you can just sort of ask anyone. Um, They're very specific and specialized to people who make products. Um, So, you know, we we mentor them through uh, and hopefully carry on a a friendship after that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what is the average age of these, the students? Uh, Late 20s, early 30s. Um, But we've had older and younger. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, what a great service. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, and and the the great thing about it too is every um, on the on the weekends they get together and they go and do explore the city and and get inspired. But also every Tuesday they have some amazing speakers that come through. Um, they have uh, some of I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the names of folks, but just you know uh, I think we had Genevieve Bell. Uh, oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had like uh, Eric Speakerman. Uh, we've had you know Scott Belsky. Just all these great designers think Jessica Hish was just there. She just, you know, what the nice thing about it is we're not allowed to tweet anything from um, this, this talk. Um, And so, uh, and it's not recorded. And Mm -hmm. so people open up, they are very candid. I think when you go to um, a lot of talks, um, they talk in these very sort of vague, sort of Mm -hmm. optimistic (laughs) (laughs) ways where everything seems very linear, everything seems very well thought through. And Anyone who makes stuff knows that that's not true or possible even. Mm-hmm. And so um, in a very safe space, they create a very safe space for 
people, um, subject matter experts to come and be very honest and candid about um, where they messed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we can all learn from that. And we can all be sort of humbled and inspired by that. And I think that that's, um, that's an incredibly unique thing to be um, around people who you um, respect in the industry and have them sort of be honest with you that that rarely happens. And they create that space. And I think that's, that's one of my exciting, one of the reasons I like being part of the mentor program is because I get to have access to that. Mm-hmm. So do they do they go out and actively seek out mentors? Um, how does that work in terms of like if somebody wanted to get involved? Oh, right. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> <they> don't <laughs> Maybe know. you don't have the answer, they, but that's they, fine. I, I don't know the answer, actually. Um, I mean, other than to say that Enrique teaches at uh, Stanford, I believe, at the D School and mm-hmm. uh, Ben uh, spent four something years at Facebook. Um, and of course, the he was the early Facebooker, and all of those folks have gone on to um, either ours still there or have gone on to other things. Mm-hmm. And, and so he, they between the two of them, they have a vast network mm-hmm. of, of just. I mean, they just know everyone, right? Uh, right. So they can hand so, select who they want. Absolutely, and you know, I think one of the things that they look for are people who are genuinely interested in in helping. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like such a lovely atmosphere, too. It's very trusting environment. It's it's so unique. I've never experienced anything quite like that. That's awesome. So let's get back to your younger years. Oh, yeah. Back to to you. Um, Tell me a little bit. Do you remember your first design project that you worked on professionally? And if so, what was it? I do. Um, It was... There were two projects. I, I basically, um, as I was saying before, it was uh, the wild, wild west of the <laughs> internet. Um, and so nobody knew what they were doing. <laughs> uh, and what that meant was uh, uh, they didn't know the difference between a print designer and a web designer. And so stylistically, I, I you know, when I went to school, um, this was during the time of like grunge and Rega. And so I was like a huge fan of David Carson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I was young. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I had cultivated my own sort of grunge aesthetic. And um, they really liked that for this one um, bugle boy was making a sort of raver skater gene uh, <laughs> called b1 soul it was uh not great um but you know it, it's one of those things where i think if you had surveyed a bunch of young people you know young people say they like raves and young people say they like skateboarding so why don't we make a skateboarding rave pant you know it's like <laughs> that seems like a bad idea but um they did it and i was a part of it and i cre- helped create and make um this very sort of grungy looking I don't know, website for them. And then the next project I worked on was Kenneth Cole, which was very different. Um, wow, yeah. Right, and uh, that was an interesting one. They they had uh, this. They had asked for this animated GIF um, as part of their homepage. And I don't know if uh, this may be dating myself, but this was at the time when people really liked splash screens. <laughs> you had to, you know, get into this branding splash screen and then hit proceed. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> to actually get to the website. And, you Great know, idea. I know, right? <laughs> Some genius made a lot of money coming up with that one. Um, but, you know, we were all complicit because we helped make those things. Um, and, and so I made uh, this animated GIF and I thought, wow, here's this new technology called Flash. And uh, I want to really incorporate this. I want to learn how to use it one, as a tool, but two, um, also incorporate this. And so I, I spent like late nights 
creating this flash demo uh, of what their site could look like. And um, I made a very, very simple young designer mistake, which was um, I showed it to the client. <laughs> and the client got super excited about it. Oh, and no. they go, great, this is exciting. I love it. Can I get it? And I go, yeah, sure, have it. And then all of a sudden, my account manager gets on the phone and she, she's like, no, you can't have it. <laughs> you can buy it. <laughs> and, um, and I learned my mistake there. I mean, I learned my lesson that, you know, this is a business. I can't just do things because I'm passionate about stuff and then give it away for free because <laughs> I have to get paid. Right. Right. And your company would not be thrilled. Oh, they would not. They were not. No. I mean, they were thrilled on one hand because they, you know, they got money for mm -hmm. basically for free. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and me, I felt great because I really liked what I, uh, you know, it seemed like Flash was such a better thing to do than the animated gift that they asked for. Right. Right. So would you consider that your biggest mistake as a young designer? Oh, no. <laughs> I made so many huge mistakes. Uh, you know, it's... It, it's silly to believe that, you know, uh, there are so many things that you do in professional uh, life that they just don't teach you. Um, and mm. common sense just isn't enough. <laughs> Not that I had a lot of that when I was younger. But, um, you know, and I constantly make mistakes because I think um, I'm just naturally curious. Uh, I just want to push stuff. And whenever you push stuff, um, things break. <laughs> right. Um, and so I've made so many mistakes along the way. Um uh, just well and, and learned a lot you know every time you make a mistake i i feel like I, I sit back and i really try to evaluate how did how did that go wrong like, what was the premise of of the the assumption that i i made these sort of guesses on and and how did they play out um, mm -hmm. yeah well, that's the point right i think so um i think once that stops you're sort of done <laughs> uh yeah yeah. Yeah, I've made, I've made quite a few mistakes. It's That's good. That's the point, as we said. So talk to me about uh, managing people. Um, I'd love to hear about um, what lessons you've learned from, from man I don't know how long you've been managing, but I imagine it's been a while. Uh, it has been a while. And some of my mistakes have been from managing. <laughs> well, that's easy. <laughs> that is an easy one. Um, you know, uh, the, the thing that lessons I've learned from managing, uh, managing is humbling. Uh, it's truly humbling. Um, uh, I think Vanessa talked about this, this concept of uh, servant leadership. Uh, mm -hmm. And this was not something that was natural to me. Um, coming from the design world, you sort of imagine having never had a lot of really great uh, design leaders um, mm -hmm. in my career. Uh, you only imagine what that role is supposed to be like. Um, so, you know, my very first job, I was I went from a contractor to a uh, junior art director to an art director in the span of seven months, which is wow. so stupid. I mean, it's just <laughs> dumb. A anytime you accelerate anybody's timeline like that, you're just going to make so many huge mistakes because I went from an IC to a manager immediately and without any training, without any understanding of what it means to be a people manager. And, you know, things that they don't tell you is that, you know, people management is a time inefficient endeavor. You know, like you have to pour so much time into people and uh, not to sort of say that designers are unique or special, but designers are special and unique. <laughs> they, are, <laughs> they are a unique bunch. And, uh, they can sometimes be very emotional. They can be uh, volatile. They can be incredibly passionate, earnest, you know, just egocentric. <laughs> There's the gamut of all the sort of crazy ranges that I, I feel like 
maybe engineers, uh, engineering managers have an understanding of, but um, design managers in particular have have to wrangle the talents of all of these sort of sometimes fragile people mm-hmm. uh, with incredibly unique skills, uh, high empathy, uh, very, very emotional, and then sort of funnel that and um, channel that. Uh, and, and as a manager, one of the, the lessons that I've really learned is um, earlier on, I thought what a manager is supposed to do is go around and direct people, tell them, you know, it's in the title, director. Mm-hmm. I thought my job was to go around telling people that color, no, blue, you know, <laughs> no, no, change that three pixels left. You know, mm-hmm. I thought this was what the role was. And I was supposed to yell in boardrooms <laughs> and, and be like, God damn it, design is important. You will pay attention. You know, like... <laughs> You have these notions because you don't have good models. Um, you know, in school, they teach you these models where you're, the best design wins. You know, it's like mm. it's a pure meritocracy. And, um, you know, people get criticized for the work. And, and it's like your, your professors punish you for not, you know, paying attention to details and these kinds of things. And in the corporate world, it doesn't matter. You know, like that, of course, is important. Of course, it's important. But there's so many times when great work ends up on the cutting room floor. And it's because you lacked as a manager the negotiation skills. You lacked as a manager the ability to tell the story mm-hmm. repeatedly over and over again. You, you as a manager, had a difficult time influencing the processes. And you have a, a little understanding of the politics and the bureaucracy that every organization has. Um, and so th- this is uh, the lesson that I learned as a manager. My, my job isn't to tell my designers what to do. My job is to hire the best designers I know how to uh, or I can hire at the organization that's right for them and then create the space and the opportunity for them to do the best work of their life. Um, and that, to me, is what a good manager does. Um, I very rarely tell my designers what to do. I help them frame problems. I help them sell ideas through. I help them um, sort of streamline their thought and or make it more presentable. Um, and I try to push those ideas up and down through the organization. Uh, most of my job is selling. Uh, hmm. And repeating. <laughs> you know, this is one of those mistakes that people make, I think, uh, as designers, is that we believe that the answer or solution is self-evident once we've created it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when when you look at a piece of work that you've done and you've toiled and spent many countless hours and put your heart and passion into and you create it and people just don't get it, um, people become demoralized. They become dejected. And I always have to encourage them, no, 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 you just have to repeat yourself ad nauseum. <laughs> You're so sick of hearing yourself talking about this design that uh, it finally gets through. I, I think there's a, I was reading this, um, we have a book club at, at, at uh, GoPro uh, oh, on cool. my team. Yeah, it's really nice. One of the, the books that we read was a book called Creativity Inc., Oh, yeah, I just finished that. Oh, great book. Great mm-hmm. book. There is a moment where Ed Catmull and Steve Jobs um, are sort of squaring off. And they Ed Catmull uh, knows about Steve, Steve Jobs' reputation and says, what are you going to do when you and I have a disagreement? And Steve Jobs says simply, easy, I just explain myself until you understand. <laughs> I think... It sounds such like a, like such a horrible thing to say, but it's so correct. <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, Ed Catmull, to his credit, you know, sort of understood this to mean that he can do that too. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and that he uh, he basically employed the same tools. And sometimes uh, that's something that designers lack is they think that because we've made this, it should be obvious why the solution should be implemented. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not at all. And so the job is then for me to help them understand that they have to go and now sell it and sell it and sell it and sell it and talk to people about it and get their feedback and incorporate the feedback and understand their pain points and help them to see what they see. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not obvious. This is not one of those things that um, they teach you in school because they teach you how to, you know, fix kerning and, you know, your your color palette is off, something mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to trivialize those things. Those things are important. But um, in an organization where people are not designers, where people are not always on the same page as you. Maybe mm-hmm. they have a different agenda. Maybe what you've just created causes them a whole host of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to understand and have empathy for the people that you work with and to help them understand your point of view, uh, this is something that, this is a lesson that I learned as a manager um, that you have to do in an organization. And this is one of those things that you have to help teach your younger designers, um, this resilience. Mm-hmm. Actually, so that's an interesting question. Lead on to the what I want to ask next. What what do you look for in recruits? Um, what do you think is the most important trait for designers? You mentioned empathy, resilience. I think, you know, looking back on what you've just talked about, people are taught to win in in yeah. in school. And when you get out of school, it's not, you know, it's the same kind of winning, but it's not the same kind of winning. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's you need to get people on on board and persuade and over communicate and you're part of a team. Um, it's not about you winning. So I'm curious to hear what you think when you're when you must have a pretty mature um, team there. Yes. Just based on the fact that you have to collaborate across so many different groups. Um, yes. You'd have to require that. But tell me a little bit about what what you look for. So um, I think Vanessa said something very interesting, which was curiosity. And I absolutely look look for that. There are things that you can teach. Uh, I mean, I, I also teach at Academy of Art. Um, mm-hmm. I teach design. And then, so I know how to teach design. <laughs> you know, I, can, <laughs> I can teach design to anyone who's interested. Um, but that's the part. You have to be interested. Um, the other thing that I think we as designers rarely talk about or design managers rarely talk about is um, that there are these archetypes that exist in design. Um, we we don't talk about these archetypes too much. Um, and this is uh, a, me having conversations with a bunch of um, designers. Matt Menz was one. Um, Brian Cronin is another. And formulated this idea of like every company. So I think one of the things that I as manager have learned to become more aware of is context. And so I'm just going to sort of set up the context for how I think about hiring designers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so every company as it is in this sort of arc, right, they are either in the incubation stage, the scale stage, the stabilized stage, the maintenance stage, or the decline phase. Mm -hmm. And every company is somewhere on this trajectory. And so there are three, in in my estimation, and uh, this is a conversation with Brian Cronin, three archetypes that are you know, these are oversimplified, of course, but I, I think they serve the purpose of telling this story of how I think about this. Um, mm-hmm. There is the maverick. The maverick is someone who can 
basically constantly generate new ideas. They are synthesizing what is happening in the, the zeitgeist and they, they have a sense or, or finger on the pulse of the gestalt and then they can sort of synthesize that into new, novel, interesting things. They rarely think about architecture. They rarely think about system. These are not system thinkers, right? Which leads me to the second archetype, which is someone who is, uh, we'll, we'll call them the architect. Mm-hmm. And the architect really can't do one thing without thinking of a system to have how to do that one thing. Um, mm-hmm. And it has to be re- repeatable. Um, and these folks, you know, really start to formulate style guides and brands and all these things that are really essential. They basically place the guardrail of what it means to do this kind of design. They're basically designing the design. And then there's the third, which is the guardian. And once that architect has created these sort of safe boundaries of which what design here looks like, feels like, the guardians are really great at taking that and and pushing it to the limits. Uh, and these, these folks might be at the phase of maintenance where, um, or even stabilize, where they have to create the idea and then they have to promote that idea. And then that idea becomes part of who they are, the brand, the, the product. Um, and so... I think it's it's difficult when, um, as designers, we like to talk about what we do as um, problem solvers or in this sort of ter- in the terms of craft, but we never talk about personalities and these archetypes. Mm-hmm. And we all sort of fit into these archetypes. Um, and so, what I have to do is evaluate where the company is on this trajectory mm-hmm. and which archetype is necessary for the role at the company at that time. And so, what I have to also understand is where this is all going mm-hmm. and understand. Does that person move with the company, grow with that company? Um, and so that's generally how I think about designers first and primarily. Where's the company at on this arc? What is necessary to get the company to the next phase? Mm-hmm. How do I bring in the right people who would be successful based on that context? Um, not only the context of the company and the business, but also the culture, also the team. Uh, and then I also look for things that are um, very unique and not something that you can see on a page or a resume, which is a force multiplier. There are people who just bring a sense of joy and happiness and collaboration and trust. And it's nothing specific that you can ever point out to that they do. It's just that they will invite you to lunch and they will remember to bring, uh, you know, a thoughtful gift from a trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will remember, you know, your son's name and his birthday. Um, you know, just little things. They'll ask you questions like genuinely wanting to know, how was your vacation? You know, like, right. <laughs> they, and those folks, um, like, how do you how do you vet for that in an interview? Mm. You, know, I, you just have to use instinct. Uh, and when you bring those people in, um, I had um, a woman named Shadia who I worked with at Samsung. And she and I worked together before at uh, Palm. And I'll tell you, I had uh, uh, designers who, when I came in, were slightly wary and untrusting. Um, and so when I hired one designer, um, the relation, he was a very, very talented res- designer, but um, the relationship wasn't really resolved. There was still this tension. And then when I bring Shadia in, all of a sudden, they're, you know, these designers are sharing screens with each other. They had two monitors, they asked for two monitors. One monitor was to see what the other was working on. And um, so they can share what each other is working on and are literally looking at what they're working on, what their partner is working on while they're working on their own screen. Hmm. 
And every every so often, I would hear them say, you know, oh, I really love what you're doing there. Can I can I take that and and use it this way? I, I've never seen that kind of trust, that kind of collaboration, um, and I credit it completely to her. You know, nothing that I did. The, the thing I did was hire her, but the thing that I did was hire her and stand back and watch her work her magic. And all of a sudden, everybody's everybody's talent, everybody's skill just jumped ten tenfold. Hmm. And how do you how do you look for that in an application? How do you look for that in a resume? I I don't know. <laughs> right, it's so just, subtle. It is. It's subtle. It's so subtle. And the opposite can also be true, right? <laughs> you bring someone in who you know is egotistical, self oriented, and they can kill collaboration. They can kill trust. They can really demoralize people. Um, their negativity, their sort of self-centeredness. And, you know, their their ego, it, it's sort of born from this fragile place and they overcompensate. And mm-hmm. so through that overcompensation, they just kill the culture. Um, I don't know how to hire. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what, what the questions are, but you just sort of have to trust your instincts on these things. Mm. Now, do you, just a side question here, do you, when you, what is the interview process like? When people come in, do they meet with the team? Do they meet? How does that work? Uh, yeah. What, one of the things that um, I tried to do when I was here was um, it really improve the recruiting process. Um, we have a designer. Her name is Michelle Lapira. One of her many, many jobs is to make the recruiting process at GoPro just the best in the world. Um, and we're working on it. It's, it's a work in progress. It's not complete. But um, the fact that someone's job is to make the recruiting process better immediately makes it better. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> she, she does such a fantastic job. And uh, what we, you know, we've refined it, we've changed it, we've, we've tweaked it. Um, we, we first had ones where, you know, we, we would have an hour presentation. Now we're down to like 45 minute presentation to the team, um, you know, s- establishing ground rules, like no one's allowed to be on their cell phone, everybody has to pay attention, everybody has to ask questions. You show the candidate a lot of respect by the questions that you ask, right? And so we we keep working on it. We we are we are refining it. Um, I think it's much better than where we were, but um, I think we can still do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's what I try to instill in her is that there's always something that we can just do a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does. It gets better every single time. That's great. It's well, you you make a point. I mean, the comment of. By the questions you ask, you show respect. They're interviewing you just as much as you're interviewing them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's the best way. It's it's like if you're on a date with somebody and if the questions are one-sided or if, you know, <laughs> if one person is doing all the talking, I mean, that's a horrible date. Um, right. And so it and, and just in any human relationship it's it's got to be a two-way street i mean i hate when people posture like you walk into interview and they go hmm you tell me why i should hire you you know (laughs) who are you what have you done right i hate that i hate that because it's not real it's not authentic because it's not what this person is going to do for you it's what we're going to do together Mm -hmm. and how do you arrive at that well i the only way i know is through a a real conversation Mm mm-hmm where you're very forthright about all of the difficulties and challenges. And if those challenges are right for them, they're going to be excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they're not, then great. It's a good thing that you found out. And no amount of talent is going to overcome the, the challenges at an organization and if they're unwilling to deal with those challenges. Mm-hmm. I, I don't care how talented you are. You can't overcome it with talent. Mm. 
Um, so beyond your own work and uh, what what people or projects are you are grabbing your attention lately? Oh, this is such a tough question. <laughs> because, <laughs> not because there's not because there's such a lack of um, great things in the world. Obviously, there's so many great things in the world, um, but nothing really rises to the top. Hmm. Um, I think that that's good. You know, the the saying that. A rising tide raises all ships. Um, I, I think that we are in this place where um, there are very few design superstars as we know it. Lots of really, really talented people doing really great work across the board. And I can't really think of anything that I would point to. Uh, we're also at this very um, so I like I like these sort of grandiose thinking about like <laughs> uh, the industry. And one of the the things that I was thinking about was um, when I made this transition from um, web to mobile. Uh, I really thought about this industry, and in the same way that mobile uh, or web was really sort of janky in the mid '90s, um, it felt like you know mobile was not there in the late uh, 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so I, I deliberately made this transition from web to mobile because I knew that there was going to be something there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was going to be a there there. And so this is when I went and joined Helio and uh, joined Matthias and um, Daniel Shiplikoff and, and Nate Strew and all these guys. And we, we created, uh, we moved on from there to go create WebOS. Uh, and this was the beginning, you know, this is during the iPhone one phase mm-hmm. and the beginning of Android, and everybody's trying to figure this this space out. Well, the good news is we figured it out, and the platform has matured, and everybody is doing great work on top of the platforms that these guys created. Uh, those guys went on to uh, Google to create uh, to work on Android, mm-hmm. uh, and so now here we are in this phase where we are reaping the benefits of all of that. And what I'm excited for is what's looking horrible today. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what's broken today? And there's so much broken. And that that's what excites me more, the opportunity to to be in a space that is not yet defined, a platform that is not matured, um, a place that has not really sort of figured it all out. And mm-hmm. to be part of the forming of what that platform means, um, and hopefully infusing it with some of my ideas about, you know, how the world should work or what the relationship should be like between products and people and societies. Um, that to me is, is more interesting than than pointing out something that is actually really good because I think there's a lot that's really good. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with you. It's, it is interesting to see um, design being applied to broken systems or, you know, just issues in society. Right. And, and it's making its way into like healthcare and government and, you know, just very like areas that were really not sexy, that were not really sort of paid attention to enterprise tools for growth. Mm-hmm. And, and design is becoming such a, a key uh, differentiator in terms of um, ease of use, lowering the frustration, adding delight, creating, you know, moments of, of joy and happiness like that. You, you couldn't say that about an enterprise tool you know, <laughs> five years ago. Uh, and now I think there are some companies that are doing a fantastic job in that space and they will they will succeed, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. But what's more interesting is like, wow, what is this wild, crazy world of IoT? Like usually you, you have to wait for it, this. This always happens where there's this wild west mentality and everybody's just sort of freaking out looking for gold and <laughs> just going in every direction. And usually the platform um, sort of or the the world sort of shakes out and 
usually there's two or three winners that come out, uh, emerge from the, the other side, and they become the platform, the de facto standard for how we do things. And we have yet to see that. But mm-hmm. I'm interested to see like who designs that, who who gets to say how a toaster talks to a microwave, right? Talks to a computer. You know, like what does that world look like, and and why? Why does it happen? You know, mm-hmm. if it's to sell more products, then that's pretty soulless and sad. But if it's to you know enable new ways of thinking about our you know family dynamics and thinking about how how we as a society become closer or mm-hmm. or further apart, like that's that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Right, right. If for for good reason, right. But yeah. it is. It's it's such the early days and all oh. of this still. Yeah. And you either really like that and you want to be in that mix or you think that that's horrible and you'll wait it out until they figured it out. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to the archetypes. (laughs) Well, and it's once, you know, it's cyclical, right? I mean, you've seen it over and over again. Um, Yeah. I mean, every operating system, I think, has a shelf life of about eight to nine years. Uh, And we're coming up at the the end of the shelf life of like an Android or iPhone. I mean, you see what happens at the end of the shelf life for like a Microsoft and or a RIM Mm -hmm. where I also worked. And it's not pretty. And so somebody is going to come and disrupt it. Um, And it's just that's just got to be the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm interested to see who that is. Mm, It keeps it fun, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> it really does. Because every time that happens, a new world of possibilities opens up. Mm-hmm. And every time we create uh, a new platform, uh, everybody, uh, there's a process, right? It, you know, it, it stabilizes over time. And then all of a sudden, people figure out a way to monetize on it. And then once monetization happens, then people really, it, it sort of thrives and it becomes ubiquitous. Um, and we're not even anywhere near the forming of the platform yet. And so... You know, imagine this new world where people have figured out how to monetize and um, sort of make ubiquitous IoT. Mm. Uh, that's going to be an interesting. It's it's an interesting time. It is indeed. Well, thank you, Wesley, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I, I had so much fun. Thanks, Mary. Wesley is speaking at the O'Reilly Design Conference happening January 19th through 22nd. You can find out more at O'Reilly.com forward slash design con. You can reach Wesley through his Twitter handle at N-U-Y-S-E-W. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 